This is our series, Desecrated, The Faces of Sin. In this series, we will examine the perverse and pervasive nature of sin as we explore specific Old Testament narratives. We will see the many faces of sin and not just view sin in a one-dimensional way, but see its multifaceted nature. Peace be with you. Also with you. Today's scripture reading is Exodus 32, 1-6. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us, who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Psalm 100 says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that it is he who is God and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures for all generations. Let's pray. Lord, you truly are good. There's a way for us to peel back your heart and to see the layers in it. Layer after layer after layer after layer will reveal your goodness. There's nothing corrupt in you. There's nothing broken in you. There's nothing lacking in you. There's nothing selfish in you. You are good. And we worship you. We exalt you. We extol your name. Father, we pray that we would experience your goodness through the preaching of your word as we gather here tonight. Even as I feel a heaviness as a result of our church ministering to a family this week in our neighborhood who is grieving the death of a 42-year-old man senselessly murdered two blocks away from here, 9.30 in the morning. In the midst of this tragedy, we still can say you are good. In the midst of what's happening in Ukraine and the pain that is felt there by individuals as well as the church who is underground there, Lord, we know that you are good. Even as I think about our servicemen and women, these two families here that I know whose uh, husbands have left the home as a result of the tensions that's happening just in case, Lord, I pray for them and I pray that they would experience your goodness. 
And each person that is represented here, Lord, and come to hear the preaching of your word, Lord, may they leave after encountering encountering your word saying, God is good. His mercy, your mercy is everlasting and your truth endures through every generation. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today, we want to continue our series called Desecrated, um, and we want to look at the theme, our Lenten theme, of sin as idolatry, sin as idolatry. And we want to look at Exodus chapter 32. Now, some business or media, tra- or media transactions um, have a, a clause that is called the exclusivity clause. And this clause simply means that there can be no competing relationships, loyalties, or contractual obligations in light of an agreement. So, for example, Jake from State Farm, who we all know is part of the family, right? In his contract, there is an exclusivity clause. He cannot sell insurance for any other company. So if you ever saw Jake from State Farm wearing a progressive sweatshirt and TMZ was to find out, he would be in trouble, right? And he would be in trouble with two people. One would be State Farm because he went into an agreement, an exclusively clause that he is only to sell and promote State Farm's insurance. But he would also be in trouble with Flo because Flo don't play that. Flo will be like, wait a minute, State Farm's your thing, and progressive is my thing. When in Scripture we see this type of exclusivity clause, for example, when we read the Ten Commandments, we read that God has gone into covenant with his people and that they are to be exclusively his, that they are not to worship or to have any God beside them. They are not to make engraven images. God is theirs, and they belong to him. And to worship any other God, and to try to represent God with any type of image and say that is God, is what we call idolatry. And that idol is anything or a person that we worship in place or alongside God. In the Old Testament, the word idolatry is used quite a bit to help us to understand sin. In the New Testament, the word doesn't occur a lot, but among its audience, it's assumed. It's often replaced with words like desire or statements that Jesus makes in the Gospels, like no one can serve two masters, right? Either you're going to love one or hate the other. And so as we talk about idolatry and as we look at this passage today, I simply want to hang the whole sermon on this sentence or idea that idolatry may appear silly, but it is serious enough to require a a sinless Savior to die in your place. Idol worship may appear silly, but it is serious enough to require a sinless Savior to die in your place. And so today, as we go through this chapter, we're literally going to read slowly through Exodus chapter 32, and I'm going to uh, kind of draw the text out. Um, Then we're going to slow down and look at just the silliness of idolatry, the seriousness of 
idolatry and our need of a savior. In Exodus chapter 32, we see that Moses was on the mountain receiving instructions for the Lord. He is in the Lord's presence for 40 days and 40 nights. Amazing. Basking in his presence. The Lord called him away from the people of Israel and called him to consecrate himself so that the Lord can give him instructions for the people of Israel. But apparently this 40 day uh, camping trip in the presence of the Lord uh, for Moses did not bode well for Israel. In fact, they are at the bottom of the mountain in the wilderness and they are straight wilding out. Moses' absence for them means that the Lord is absent. And we're going to see in this text that they are going to turn back to their former idols because they feel that God is not present. And perhaps they feel this way because they were enslaved as a people for 400 years and fear and lack of trust are themes that rule their heart. But either way, it's unexcusable. In chapter 33, 2 verse 1 we read when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain they gathered around Aaron and said to him come make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt we don't know what has happened to him and Aaron replied take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives your sons and your daughters and bring them to me so all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. And they took the gold from them. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool. So he melted it down, then fashions it and made it into the image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you from the land of Egypt. That's something to say. Israel in Moses's absence goes to Aaron. Aaron, make us a God. And Aaron makes them an image of a golden calf. And there's a a portion of this which makes sense. In Egypt, they would have been polytheistic, meaning that they would have worshipped many gods, not just one God. But I think this is more than polytheism. I think this, this is syncretism. Because we're going to see in this text that they are going to still worship Yahweh. They're going to make fellowship offerings. They're going to do all the things that God commanded them to do when making an offering. But they're going to mix it with their former religion. They're going to mix it with what they were comfortable with because in Egypt there were calves and they would worship a golden calf because a golden calf represented fertility and blessing. So when God appears absent, they mix a little bit of God along with what they were used to worshiping. And get Aaron, this pastor, this leader, He gives in to these demands. These people, they have itchy ears. They want a a leader that's going to, to satisfy their itch, scratch where they itch, not tell them what thus says the Lord. And Aaron, under the pressure of the people, gives them what they want. And there seems to be some delusion in this text. Because there is a shouting from the crowd, this is the God who delivered us out of Egypt. And I imagine that Aaron is torn within himself because he has has been there for most of the time. And he can sense when the Lord is present. He, He knows that this calf wasn't present when God spoke 
from a burning bush to Moses? He knows that this is not the God who delivered them from the hands of of Pharaoh, the number one superpower of the world through 10 miraculous plagues. He knows that this isn't the God who rained manna from heaven, angels food, golden graham crackers for them to eat every morning and who allowed quail to just fall from the sky right at their feet so they can go out and gather their meal each morning. Oh, he knows, he, he knows that, that this calf does not represent Yahweh, the one who split the Red Sea open so that they can walk through on dry land and who allowed that sea to come crashing down on Pharaoh and his army. But for Aaron, he had some idolatry. As a leader, he wanted comfort. He wanted his ego stroked. He wanted people to think favorably of him. Verse 5. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a feast, a festival to the Lord tomorrow. And early in the morning they arose, they offered burnt offerings, and they presented fellowship offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and to, and they got up to party. So you see the syncretism, fellowship offerings, which the Lord taught them how to do. And then this partying and this drinking, which is going to uh, go along with all kind of immorality is being mixed together. This is a syncretism of two kingdoms. There's a reforming that needs to take place in the heart of Israel as God has delivered them from Egypt. But even though he has taken them out of Egypt, Egypt has not been taken out of them. And essentially, this is what discipleship is. Discipleship is a person coming to Jesus, uh, submitting to him as Lord and Savior and allowing him to test and to build and to shape and to mold and to to make and to tear down and to build back up to 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 form us into the image of himself there's a reforming that takes place when God delivers us from Egypt and it isn't always pretty sometimes we syncretize we we look back to Egypt Verse 7, the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people. I would have been like, my people? (laughs) Those are your people. You delivered them out of Egypt. For your people, you brought up from the land of Egypt, have acted correctly. God is distancing himself from his people here. They have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves the image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. What is happening here? God is... Testing Moses. God says, your people. All along in Exodus, they are God's people. Now they're Moses' people. He's like, I don't want to have nothing to do with them. They out there wilding out. Those are your people. 
And then he says, listen, I'm just going to wipe them all out. And I'm going to make a great nation out of you. This is a test. This is a test to see if, if Moses has now gained the heart of a pastor for his people. Verse 11 is some of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Beautiful verses in the Bible. Look at this. Mm. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand? Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and to eliminate them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and relent concerning this disaster plan for your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You swore to them by yourself and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and will give your offspring all this land that I have promised and they will inherit it forever. Verse 14, so the Lord relented concerning the disaster he had said he would bring on his people. God is testing Moses' heart as a shepherd. And Moses passed the test with flying colors because in the midst of this turmoil, in the midst of a hurting and aching heart, Moses reminds God of his promises. Moses cries out as an intercessor on behalf of the people, and he reminds God of, of what he has said. And this is a great picture of us when we feel like the Lord is absent, when our hearts are topsy-turbulent, are hurting, when our emotions get out of whack. We've got to learn like Moses does in this to go back to God and to remind him of what he said. And to remind ourselves of his faithfulness, to remind us that he promised that he would never leave nor forsake us. To remind us that him, that, that he said that he'll be with us when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We've got to remind ourselves that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We've got to remind ourselves that there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We have to remind ourselves that if we trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not to our own understanding, that he will direct our paths. We've got to learn to wrestle with God. We've got to learn to stretch out our hands like the woman with the issue of blood. We've got to learn to linger in praise and intercessory prayer rather than pouting. We've got to learn to turn to him when we are in need, knowing that he is faithful. What a picture of the power of prayer. Moses interceded and God relented. And this next section is pretty sad, but it's also pretty funny. Verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hands. And they were inscribed on both sides, inscribed front and back. 
And the tablets were the work of God. Whoa. And the writing was God's handwriting engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a sound of war in the camp. But Moses replied, it's not the sound of a victory cry, and it's not the sound of a cry of defeat. I hear the sound of singing. And me and my sanctified imagination, I'm reading it this week, and I'm just imagining them walking down, and they're like, oh, Joshua's like, they're down there fighting. There's a war going on. And as they hurry down the mountain a little more, Moses is like, no, that's not, a, that's not a cry of victory or defeat. That's a cry of some music. And Moses is thinking, oh, they're singing, here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. And then as they get closer, he's like, no, that's not here I am to worship. That's 50 cents in the club. Or for my more mel- less melanated people, let's uh, play that funky music, white boy, right? And they go down and they see an all-out worldly party happening. So how does Moses respond? Verse 19. As he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged. And he threw the tablets out of his hands, the ones that God wrote by his hand. And I think it's interesting because the next time God calls them up, God's like, you're going to write it out this time, right? (laughs) Smashing them at the base of the mountain. He took the calf they had made, burned it up and grounded it to powder. He scattered the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water which would have been incredibly toxic. Now, this is a description. It's not a prescription. God is not saying that you have a right to do this to someone who is behaving ungodly. Verse 21, then Moses asked Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have led them into such a grave sin? This is a grave sin. This is serious. This is blasphemy. This is taking the goodness of the Lord and ascribing it to something that is false. This is mixing two kingdoms. Syncretism is not something to take lightly. And I just sense in our culture among Christians, there's a syncretistic spirit of I can have Jesus and I can have the world too. I can have the cross and I can have these counter cross beliefs as well. This is not the way of God. God calls us to be set apart. God calls us to be different. God calls us to to swim upstream, but it's not in our own power, our own might, or our own strength. It's in his power and his might and his strength with his people. Verse 22, itchy ear-preaching Aaron says, don't be enraged, my Lord. (laughs) I mean, you yourself know that the people are intent on evil. 
They said to me, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. And when I threw it into the fire, voila, out came this calf. (laughs) Voila. I was just trying to help the people. You know they're evil. And I just did this and fashioned it and voila. Earlier today, we had uh, someone who speaks French. They were reading the French Bible. And they said, they said, did you know that in the French translation, it literally says voila? I was like, no, I did not know that. That was totally impromptu. <laughs> and this takes us back to our previous sermons. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. And rather than them own their sin, they blame shift. Cain is caught in sin, and rather than own his own sin, what does he do? He blame shifts. Abram and Sarai are impatient. They lack, and they don't trust the Lord's goodness, so they go out in their own strength and own flesh to, to act. And, and what does Sarai do when, when the plan doesn't work out? She blames Abram. Listen to me. When you sin and blow it, If you are not treasuring the gospel of Jesus Christ and you are not finding your identity in him, hear me, all of us, what our hearts are tempted to do is to blame someone else for our sin. And as gospel-believing children of God who have been adopted into his family, who are fully accepted, fully loved, fully treasured, who on their worst days and their best days, when they stand before God, have the same thing spoken of them. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased because you are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to blame shift. The gospel empowers and enables us to say, I blew it. Shame would have us blame God and blame others. But God has freed us from shame, guilt, and fear because Jesus knows the worst about us. And he died for the worst about you and he buried it in a grave. And he rose on the third day with all power. And you have been justified by faith in Christ. We should be able to own it and say, I blew it. Forgive me. Not voila. Idolatry in here really does seem silly, doesn't it? When we look back to God's faithfulness to Israel, it really should baffle us when reading this story. Like, how could they, like, how, how could they miss it? I mean, they've seen the works of God. They were being led by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. How could they turn from the Lord? How could they run to idols? 
But if you know yourself like I know me, (laughs) I know that though idolatry seems silly, it makes a lot of sense. Because our hearts are prone to wonder. Because we are weak individuals. And because the world comes at us sometimes so strongly in our flesh and Satan. But underneath our idolatry, normally, normally, we talked about this a little bit last week, underneath our idolatry is a a longing for, for presence, is a longing for safety and acceptance and nearness. And when God does not feel near, when God feels absent, when God seems far away, when we can't trace him, it's hard for us to trust him. And we then turn our hearts away from him to other things. But the truth is, is that God is always with us. God was present with his people while they were in the wilderness. He was working on their behalf. He was getting ready to reveal himself even more to them. But the feeling of absence led them into idolatry. Here's the word. Don't worship from God from your feelings. Y'all hear me say it all the time. Feelings are great indicators, but horrible dictators. Don't base your reality on what you feel or what you can see. As Christians, those who have been redeemed by Christ, we walk by faith and not by sight. We have to base our reality on what we know. And what do we know? We know that God has delivered us from Egypt by not sparing his own son. We know that Jesus has taken on the wrath of God so that we can be free. We know that we are infinitely loved. Oh, the height, the depth, the width of God's love. We know that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We know that the Holy Spirit is indwelling us and empowers us to cry out, Abba. We know that we have a mediator who is seated on the right hand of God interceding for us. And when we can't feel it, we have to go on what we know and what we believe and not the other way around. Allow your beliefs to carry your feelings rather than your feelings to carry your beliefs. Romans chapter 1, 18 through 25, we have one of the most beautiful passages on idolatry. It shows us our heart. It opens our hearts up and shows us what we are after. It opens Israel's hearts up and shows them what they're after. 
Paul writes to Christians in Rome. A lot of times we read this passage and we're thinking, oh, Paul is writing to non-Christians. Paul is writing to Christians here. Verse 18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse, for they knew God. They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Why does our hearts turn away from God? At the end of the day, verse 21, it is because we do not glorify him as God and live in gratitude. And that's because we want control of our lives. And we think that if we can just control our lives, we'll be safe. We'll have comfort. We'll have significance. We think that our hearts will be filled with a a presence that will give us peace. But the Bible teaches us time and time and time again. That the only thing that will satisfy our hearts is God's presence and us trusting that he is in control of our lives and that he is to be honored. And it's us learning to live with gratitude, recognizing that he has already done more for us and given us more than we deserve. And when we ignore and when we don't honor God, when we don't slow down to live with a heart of gratitude and gratefulness, verse 22 is what happens. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. So we long to control our lives. And our strategy for controlling our own lives is to create things and to set our hearts on them, to build our lives around them. We were created by God to worship. And while we cannot eliminate God, what we try to do in our hearts and many times unbeknownst is we try to create God's substitutes. Things that we can control, things that we can feel, that we can taste, that we can experience to relieve us from our discomfort. Our hearts, as one theologian says, truly are idle factories. We're constantly reaching for things outside of God, hoping that it will give us identity and purpose. And what's our idols? It's different for all of us. 
There's two types of idols. There's motivational idols or what some theologians call far idols. They call them far idols because these aren't easily discerned. It takes you slowing down, listening to the scripts that you tell yourself. These motivational idols could be idols of power, control, idols of approval, love and respect, comfort. But these motivational idols often cling or latch onto what we call concrete idols. Specific objects and subjects such as our business, our grades, our career, our ministry, our significant others, our sexuality. These motivations latch on to something that is, is tangible and it builds this web in our heart. And rather than us, even as Christians saying, for, for to live is Christ and to die is gain, we substitute Christ out for other things. For to live is to be successful at this career. Why? Because if I'm successful at this career, then I will be approved and loved by others. But what happens when we allow our hearts to be overtaken by idols? Verse 21 and 25 in Romans says that we go into a deep period of deception. Their thinking became futile and their hearts were darkened. That's why God is so angry at Israel in the wilderness, because he knows that they are on a trajectory of of darkness. Then second, they become slaves. It says that they worshiped and served created things. God is looking for a people who recognizes that created things will not satisfy you. That it will leave you empty, constantly seeking for more. Becoming an approval sub. Constantly wondering, am I enough? Am I loved? And the only one who can answer that question and satisfy your heart and root you in an identity that is not shifting sand is Jesus. So here are some questions to help you diagnose some of the idols that may be in your heart. Some popular questions that you can find. You want to Identify your your idols, both near and far. Ask yourself some of these questions. What is your greatest nightmare? What do you worry about the most? What if you failed or lost would cause you to feel that you do not even want to live? What's the thing that really keeps you going? And this isn't the church answer. Like, what's really keeping you going? What do you rely on or comfort yourself when things go bad or get difficult? When things go bad or get difficult, are you running to Woodford Reserves or are you running to the reserves of the Holy Spirit, the reservoir of the Holy Spirit? 
What prayer unanswered will make you seriously think about turning away from God if God doesn't answer this prayer, if God doesn't give me this? Where do you find your self-worth? What are you proudest of? What do you really want or expect out of life? What will really make you happy? And thinking these things and, and having some of these things as an answer doesn't necessarily mean that it's an idol, but it can help to reveal your idols. And God's invitation for us is not to simply navel gaze and to constantly obsess and wonder if we have idols, but rather, listen, God's invitation for us is to repent and to turn from not worshiping him and to rejoice in the fact that through him we are made right and to worship him, to worship him, to adore him, to exalt him, to to magnify him, to constantly set our minds on the things that are above and not the things of this earth, to remind ourselves that only in him will we truly be satisfied. The rest of the story we see in verses 25 through 30 is that God brings judgment on Israel through Moses. It's really sad. Moses goes and he gets off the mountain. He's looking at everybody and he's like, this is absolutely out of control. And he shouts, man, who here is is with the Lord? Who here is on the Lord's side? And the Levites, they're all just sitting around watching this craziness. And they appear and then they take daggers and they just go around stabbing people who are defiling the name of God. And the Bible says that 3,000 people are killed in one day. And here's the thing. Some people look at the Old Testament and say, man, God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. Or I don't understand why God would be so brutal. Listen to me. All of us deserve death. The only reason, the only way that we escape this type of judgment is through Jesus Christ. God is holy and perfect and just. For him to not have wrath towards unrighteousness would make him unjust. And it's only by the grace and the mercy of God that we are covered. I love in this passage how Moses is going to go on and he's going to cry out to the Lord, And he's going to say, Lord, rather than inflict these people, let me die for them. Wow. But God is going to turn down Moses' request for self-sacrifice. And God says, no, I am going to inflict these people. I am going to, because he says, I will hold them accountable for their sin. And the Bible says that the Lord inflicted them. Why did God not allow Moses to die for the people? It's because Moses is a sinner. His blood could not purge them. But years later, there would come a a man, a God man, who would be able to sacrifice himself for the people. And his name is Jesus. And his blood satisfied the wrath of God so that we as Christians, when we fall in idolatry, we don't have to live in fear 
guilt, or shame. But our sin is covered by his blood. And so if you, as you look back on this week and you say, man, I am living in syncretism. I am living in, in false idol worship. God's invitation for you, Christian, is to repent and to rejoice that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. My sin had left the crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. God is not condemning you. God is not judging you. He is inviting you as a son and a daughter to turn from that idol to him and to rejoice that your sins have been forgiven. Blessed is the one whose transgressions have been forgiven. You just stand to your feet. I want to do something a little different today. As we close, I want us to think about the goodness of God by uh, thinking on how Paul uses this passage to the church of Corinth. And what I want to do is just read a liturgical movement before we go into communion. This is what Paul wrote. Now, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and to drink and got up to party together. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Let us not test Christ as some of them did. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. And every week we take a meal together to remind us of God's faithfulness to us. God allows us to experience him through eating and drinking. There is something about the human experience and the body that needs to be engaged. As Christians, sometimes we just think engaging a mind is where we're going to find, find healing, but, but God has created us to be holistic people. And so he's given us this meal to remind ourselves of his goodness so that we can eat this meal together with brothers and sisters from all walks of life and taste and see his goodness. We break bread knowing that the bread represents the body of Jesus. And we drink wine or juice knowing that this is the blood of Jesus shed for us. If you're not a Christian, we're going to ask you not to partake in this meal, but rather just to think about the story and what has been said. About how Jesus Christ came and he bore the wrath of God so that you, through faith in him, could have a relationship with the God of this universe and experience a love that can never be taken away. Let's eat this bread, remembering the body of Jesus broken for us.
Let's drink this cup remembering the blood of Jesus shed for us. The Bible says that they rose and they ate and they drank, but it also said that they did something else. They partied. Part of partying is, is singing. And I really believe that one of the ways in which we fight idols is through worship. It's actually through singing. It's through getting our bodies involved, singing words that we believe. And I believe that as we sing those words, that God knocks those words deeper into our heart and we learn to believe them more and more. And I believe that something emotional happens, something uh, psychological happens. There is a breaking through of the spirit when we involve ourselves. Now, I grew up in the black church. And in the black church, there generally is an expressiveness to our worship. And part of the reason there's an expressiveness to our worship historically, it was that African-Americans had a very hard road. But what kept them in the cotton fields, what kept them as they were treated as second-class citizens wasn't a counselor's couch. Because historically, most African-Americans couldn't afford $150 an hour for someone to listen to them. And so what we did, what grandma did, what, what my parents and foreparents did is they came into the house of the Lord and they worshiped and they sung choruses over and over. And it was as they were corporally, corporally experiencing God, singing God, getting their hands involved, getting their hearts involved, that those words began to sink in and, and it became an act of them casting their cares on the Lord together. Reminding each other as they heard each other sing of God's faithfulness, of God's presence, of God's kindness. Some of us, we get stuck and we're stuck in our emotions because we don't experience worship. Because we don't get our bodies and our hearts involved. And so our faith is all cognitive. And perhaps God's invitation for you is to sing to him. To involve your mouth and your heart and to give him a sacrifice of praise. Let's worship the Lord. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.